Hello everyone, I'm Steven Reisner, and this is Madness, where psychology and capitalism collide. I'm crazy for feeling so lonely. I'm coming to you today from Berlin, a city that from the 15th century to the 19th century was the center of power and culture in Middle Europe, and which in the 20th century embodied the hope and destruction of every fantasy of Western civilization, from Weimar to Hitler to the wall going up and the wall coming down. And today, Berlin is rising again as an international center of youth culture. This week, as I ate lunch in the Tiergarten, Berlin's central park, while stylish, sophisticated Berliners sang happy birthday to one another in English, I noticed a beautiful sight out the window, a cherry tree in full bloom. It is early February, and cherry trees are blooming in Berlin. They are also blooming in New York City, in Okinawa, and in Washington, D.C., where newscasters are telling the public not to worry. The blossoming cherry trees are not the ones the tourists come to see in April. And those cherry trees will only be a few weeks early this year, and that shouldn't hurt the D.C. economy. Heartbroken? at the sight of a blossoming cherry tree sounds like madness. Just two weeks ago, I had the privilege of traveling with Michael Moore, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and Bernie Sanders on their whirlwind tour of Western Iowa. It was the home stretch of the Iowa caucus campaign. Michael Moore and AOC had been asked to stand in for Bernie because he was on the jury at the trial of the century, the world versus Donald Trump. But ever the showman, Trump had the trial suspended on Saturday afternoon because he was unhappy with the television ratings. So Bernie flew to Iowa to join us on the campaign trail. We know how that ended. We know the trial ended in acquittal, which Trump has called complete vindication. We know the caucuses ended in chaos, exposing once again that the Democratic National Committee is not prepared for the epic battle ahead. But that is not what I want to talk about today. Today, I want to talk about what I saw when Bernie Sanders walked into the packed room of working-class voters in Marshalltown, Iowa, population 27,552. 
There was something in his gait that felt different from the Bernie I had watched on television, something in his shoulders. He spoke as if he were carrying the fate of the world on his shoulders. This is the most consequential election, perhaps in the history of the United States of America. What we are talking about is whether or not we maintain democracy or move toward autocracy. Bernie did not speak with panic in his voice, but with the authority of someone who had spent the week observing how much the rules had changed in Washington, observing how powerful were the voices of denial and rage. He spoke to the people of Marshalltown, about the climate emergency, not the way the UN talks about it, not the way Greta Thunberg talks about it, the usual campaigns urging us all to act quickly to avoid catastrophe, to avoid breaching the 1.5 degree threshold. He spoke in Iowa as someone who is willing to calmly speak truth to the powerless. Now let me touch on an issue now that is not an American issue, certainly not an Iowa issue, it is a global issue. And that is the existential threat to this planet in terms of climate change. Now, what I will tell you is a little bit scary. and People may not want to even hear it. But what the scientists are telling us now is they have underestimated the severity and the degree to which climate change is ravaging our country and the planet. What I will tell you is scary. People may not want to hear it. With those words, Bernie identified the biggest threat to the country and to the world. No, it's not the threat of climate change itself. It's the threat of what fear does to the American people and what fear is doing to democracy throughout the world. To understand how fear changed the course of democracy and led directly to the phenomenon of Donald Trump, I have to take a detour and explain the concept of trauma its meaning, and its effects from a psychoanalytic point of view. As a child of Holocaust survivors and a psychoanalyst and a university professor, I have spent my life trying to make sense of trauma, to understand its treatment, but more importantly, to understand its place in culture. And what I've come to understand is that individuals and cultures alike develop their character and values based largely on how they respond to the traumas of their history. What I've learned is that there are basically two ways to respond to trauma and to treat trauma. And these two ways can be traced back to the 19th century and the battle between two extraordinary psychologists, Sigmund Freud, and Pierre Janet. The two studied together under the tutelage of Jean-Martin Charcot, 
who ran a psychiatric hospital in Paris in the 1880s and 90s. Both Freud and Genet rejected the idea that the psychiatric symptoms of the day were caused by dementia or laziness or by being female. Those were the popular understandings of neurosis of the 19th century. But Freud and Genet each independently arrived at the idea that symptoms were caused by traumatic experiences early in life, that, because they were too painful, were no longer available to memory. But the two psychologists had radically different ideas about what to do about this, how to treat the effects of those repressed memories. Janet believed that the patient was simply incapable of integrating the terrible experiences and that true healing required reinstating the pre-traumatic state, the condition of the person before the experience of the trauma. So Janet's treatment consisted of hypnotizing the patient and offering a post-hypnotic suggestion that would free them of the burden of the terrible experience. Here is Janet describing one of his famous cases, the case of Marie. It occurred to me, Janet writes, to put her into a deep somnambulistic condition, a state where it is possible to bring back seemingly forgotten memories, and thus I was able to find out the exact memory of an incident which had hitherto been only very incompletely known. The attacks of terror were the repetition of an emotion which this young girl had felt when seeing, at the age of 16, an old woman killing herself by falling downstairs. Through the same hypnotic process as before, through bringing the subject back by suggestion to the moment of the accident, I succeeded, not without difficulty, to show her that the old woman had only stumbled, but had not killed herself. The attacks of terror did not recur. So, Genet's treatment consisted of convincing the patient that something that had happened had actually not happened. But it turns out to be a lot of work to convince someone that something that actually happened had, had not happened. And this is especially true if there are reminders of the event in the patient's everyday life. This required, according to Janet, repeated hypnosis, re-education, and mental training. I would add it also required a dependency on the authority of the hypnotists. It requires someone who speaks to the patient the way Chico Marx spoke to Margaret Dumont in Duck Soup. I saw you with my own eyes. Well, who are you going to believe, me or your own eyes? Sigmund Freud had a very similar belief about the origin of neurotic symptoms. He also believed they were the result of overwhelming traumatic experience. He even went through a period where he thought that all neuroses were caused by repressed memories of childhood sexual abuse. But Freud believed that the cure required 
coming to terms with those memories, remembering them, and making them part of consciousness. Psychoanalysis became a process of remembering what was being repressed or denied or avoided. Freud believed that the aim of psychoanalysis was the freedom to know, to know what you've been through, to feel it fully, to mourn the tragic events in your life, and to move forward with all the knowledge, wisdom, and courage that facing the truth entails. Freud said famously that we are better off transforming neurotic misery into common unhappiness, because then we are empowered to deal with our unhappiness. We could say that Genet, although he didn't know it, was the first capitalist psychologist. Instead of helping the girl accept that tragic experiences are a part of life, he promised her a life without tragedy, and he offered, for a fee, a treatment that, if she just became dependent on it, would fulfill that promise. Janet's way of dealing with trauma was to offer the hypnotic reassurance that the trauma never existed, or if it did exist, that it can be undone completely so that the patient's experience can be made great again. American capitalism and American politics are now fueled by precisely this philosophy. If Americans discover that life brings with it any kind of suffering, American capitalism offers a product or a service or a drug to help Americans forget the suffering, avoid it, resist it, deny it. Aging, fear, sadness, loss, American capitalism offers a hypnotic treatment. And as a result, Americans experience any discomfort, a contradictory idea, a hostile remark, a gender difference, or an obscure flirtation, a cultural norm, or a political opinion different than their own. Americans experience each of these as a trauma that must be removed at all costs. And American politics now promises that if the threat does not disappear, someone will be blamed and punished. Someone will be fired or deported so that the university or the country can be made great again. And this is also the response to climate change on both the right and the left. The right denies the effects of climate change outright, and they have a president, hypnotist, mesmerizing them and re-educating them into forgetfulness. But the left is in its own hypnotic spell, believing that the threat can be undone, that we can avoid and deny the tragedy that we see every day in front of us by keeping the temperature rise under 1.5 degrees, by becoming vegetarian, by paying to offset our carbon footprint when we fly, and by eating local, we can make the earth great again. My mother told me a story when she was in the Ludge ghetto. She told me that her family was living in one room 
And one day, they had a visitor. It was a man they knew from before the war. He was from the same town as they were from, Pabjanica, but he had escaped the first ghetto, and it took the Germans two years to find him and send him to the Ludge ghetto. They sat together, the visitor and my mother's father, my grandfather, drinking tea, and the man spoke to them of what he saw before he was captured. He said, I have come to warn everyone in the ghetto. The Germans are killing Jews. They have set up a giant killing factory, and they are sending Jews there by the thousands, maybe by the tens of thousands. Her father, my grandfather, sat and listened seriously, drinking his tea. And after the man left, the family gathered around him, frightened. The man is crazy my grandfather said. I was a soldier in the German army during the last war. The Germans treated me well, with dignity, even though I was a Jew. The Germans I knew would not do this. The man is crazy, or he's just trying to frighten us. I think about that moment often these days. My grandfather had already seen the Jews in his small town beaten and herded into a ghetto. He had already seen those same Jews beaten again, herded again into a slightly larger ghetto along with 160,000 others. He had already seen Jews dying of starvation in the street and deported out of the ghetto in cattle cars. And yet he could not imagine the radical evil that was in front of his eyes. Philip Gurevitz, in his memoir of post-genocide Rwanda, wrote, what fascinates me most in existence is the peculiar necessity of imagining what is in fact real. Human beings must be able to imagine what is in front of them must be able to fit the facts in front of them with their conception of the world. The problem is that in its very nature, overwhelming change is difficult to conceive of, and it occurs faster than most people are able to imagine it. Trauma does not arise only because of the severity of a traumatic event. Trauma is the result of the tearing apart of everything we believe. It is more than a crisis of imagination. It is a crisis of meaning. It is a crisis of trust. Trust that in hard times, people will still act like people. Trust that the president will obey the law. Trust that the cherry blossoms will bloom in April. Overwhelming change is difficult to imagine. Overwhelming change that is the result of human evil is nearly impossible. Hannah Arendt, in her book on totalitarianism, said that because of our natural tendency to believe in the good, we cannot conceive of radical evil. Therefore, she said, we actually have nothing to fall back on in order to understand a phenomenon that nevertheless confronts us with its overpowering reality. But actually, I don't agree with Hannah Arendt. I find 
that even in the face of overwhelming evil and catastrophic change, there are certain people who can recognize what is happening. And those people come through the horrors without trauma. Research shows that such people fall into two categories. There are those who are able to rely on their independent value systems and who maintain their beliefs in spite of the shock and the horror. They use their religion or their political views or their capacity for love to guide them. And when and if the terror ends, these people are likely to come out the other side and integrate what they've seen within the larger context of what they believe and what they align themselves with and what they are willing to fight for. I believe that such people have an enormous capacity for love, for mourning, and for hope. Research also shows that there is another kind of person who comes through the terrible circumstances without trauma. It turns out, and this really shouldn't be surprising, that sociopaths have a kind of immunity to trauma. And that's because sociopaths are able to see every event as an opportunity for personal gain. Sociopaths, and here I am not speaking of a diagnostic category, I am speaking of an interpersonal and political strategy. Sociopaths thrive in circumstances that are overwhelming to other people. They thrive in environments without humanity, environments of human exploitation and of cruelty. That's why they rise to the top in prisons and in concentration camps. They have an extraordinary capacity to justify their actions without guilt. Thaddeus Borowski, in his memoir of Auschwitz called This Way to the Gas, ladies and gentlemen, reported a conversation he had with a camp guard, Becker, who had sent his own son to his death. Borowski was shocked at what he heard from the guard. And the guard, as Borowski reports it, looked at him almost with pity and said, you know something, Tadek? I think you're a nice boy, but you haven't really known hunger, have you? Well, that depends on what you mean by hunger. Real hunger, said Becker, is when one man regards another man as something to eat. We are facing radical environmental changes affecting all life on Earth. Let me correct that. We are seeing radical environmental changes affecting all life on Earth. We are seeing these changes all around us, but I am not sure we are facing these changes. And we are not really facing these changes because we are traumatized, not only by the fact that the changes are overwhelming and are happening faster than we can conceive of them, but also by the fact that these changes have been wrought and continue to be wrought by corporate executives, by political leaders, by oligarchs, by people who regard every living thing on earth, animals, plants and people as something to eat. And the rest of us are in a kind of shock 
That's why, in spite of the fact that temperatures have risen steadily over the past decade, we still refer to these temperatures as above normal. In spite of the fact that the cherry trees have been blossoming regularly in January, we still say they are coming early. They are not coming early. The temperatures are not above normal. This is the new normal. Early blossoms, early migrations are the new normal. The loss of birds, of insects, of fish, of forests. We just can't see it. We can't admit it because we are traumatized by the sheer magnitude and rapidity of what is happening around us. And like children in a thunderstorm, we turn to our elders to signal how we are to perceive what is in front of our eyes. Elders who we hope can stand outside the chaos and explain what is happening. Elders who can see the catastrophe and not lose their bearings. Which brings us back to Bernie Sanders speaking with the fate of the world on his shoulders. What I have to tell you is scary, and you may not want to hear it. This election if we have an election, comes down to this. How will Americans work through the trauma that is erupting everywhere? Will Americans look to the hypnotist president who offers an imaginary fear in the place of the real danger? Or will we turn to the traditional Democrats who promise an imaginary hope based on denial of the irreversible effects that are already upon us? Because Americans have been trained to identify any discomfort as a trauma, we have lost the ability to make use of the experience of fear, as if fear were it to be fully experienced, would render us paralyzed and hopeless. But psychoanalysis teaches us that it is only when we face our fears that we know when to fight back, that we know when to make change. It teaches us that acknowledging the reality of our tragic circumstance, looking squarely in the face of what terrifies us, mourning what we have lost, and identifying what is still possible, is ultimately energizing, ultimately allows us to mobilize, to save what can be saved, and create what must be created to adapt, to change, and to persevere. First, the hurricanes came, but I did not speak out because I was not in its path. Then the floods came, but I did not speak out because I was not in a flood zone. Then the fires came, but my house did not burn. And then the insects began to disappear. But I was not a farmer. I did not need the bees. Then the glaciers began to disappear, and the fish, and the birds. And then I did speak out, and I discovered my power.
this is Steven Reisner, and you've been listening to Madness, where psychology and capitalism collide.